First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Han Matson, author of the novel The Lost Prayers of Ricky Graves. Matson is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop and teaches and writes fiction. The Lost Prayers of Ricky Graves tells the story of a young gay boy living in New Hampshire who, after being bullied and humiliated for his sexuality, murders his tormentor, injures another boy, and then kills himself. The novel is told in first-person accounts by those close to Ricky Graves and includes transcripts of Graves' chats with an older man on a gay website while his coming out and then dissent were taking place. We began the discussion with James Han Matson talking about the true events the novel was based on. The real-life inspiration came from an actual suicide that happened in 2010. A guy named Tyler Clementi was a Rutgers University student, and he jumped off the George Washington Bridge because his roommate live-streamed him having sex with another man in their dorm room. And uh, his roommate actually... Uh, invited a whole bunch of people to kind of gawk. And I remember reading this article and thinking, uh, just feeling, you know, sick to my stomach. And when I have that reaction to anything that happened in the world, unfortunately, it kind of is every day now, but I can't write about everything that's happening. But when I have that that strong of a reaction, um, I know that I, I really want to write about it. Uh, so that's kind of the inspiration. And then kind of the uh, aftermath of all this rash of suicides occurred with uh, uh, young gay kids was also something that I wanted to talk about because uh, what happened was there is, you know, this It Gets Better campaign headlined by Dan Savage. Uh, and everyone was kind of getting on board. And I just kind of found that the ideas surrounding it a little bit too simple um, and simplistic, and I wanted to complicate the ideas a little bit more, and I wanted to do that through fiction. So in the book with Ricky, he is in high school. He's just coming out. He's come out to this man named Jeremy on a chat room who lives in California, and Ricky's in New Hampshire. And there's a boy in school named Wesley who is really a prankster, but he gets close to Ricky, makes Ricky think that he's gay, invites him out to the woods, gets this picture of Ricky where he thinks he's going to kiss Wesley and he's kissing a dog. And that's what yeah. goes viral. Tell me about your process of, of what you chose was going to be this incident that was humiliating because you didn't go as far as him having sex and, and he didn't jump off a bridge. He involved other people in his crime at the end. So can you talk about forming this? I knew I wanted something that had to do with the Internet and had to do with social media because I think the uh, idea of posting something is horrific to me because, I, I mean, I didn't grow up that way. Uh, I grew up where if you, you know, if you were humiliated, the only people who witnessed that humiliation were the people within, uh, you know, that were around you physically. Um, but now anyone and everyone can witness that humiliation, you know, over and over and over. And I, I wanted to have the social media involved. As far as a prank, I mean, you know, I understand like what 
what someone like when a a kid in in high school it feels like they're in love with somebody. I, I mean, I really, really wanted to inhabit that, and I, I wanted to inhabit somebody who knows somebody else's vulnerability in that sense. Uh, so that's where Wesley came, and it was just so especially cruel. I mean, the actual act itself was not awful, I guess. I mean, like the act of someone, you know, kissing a dog, that's not... I mean, you see people kissing dogs all the time, and like, let's say their tongues touch, most people aren't going to be like... You know, that's so gross. I mean, it's it, the thing is, this the story behind it was that Ricky was just so devastated by the fact that he really thought that he was in love. And I think like when you're in high school, those feelings of love are just so amplified and just so absolutely insane. And so the fact that, you know, he, he actually felt that this was going to happen and then it turned into this joke was uh, what was so devastating to him. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Han Matson, author of the novel The Lost Prayers of Ricky Graves. Some of the characters are in high school, not all of them. You did such a great job of, of capturing the high school experience. In addition to, you know, Ricky's feeling about love, there's another kid, Mark McVitry, who uh, was in on the prank but used to be really good friends with Ricky when he was young. And then later you have a, a girl, Claire, who was friends with Ricky, sort of, <laughs> um, and warned him about Wesley and after everything happened, Mark survived the shooting. He got shot in the arm, but he was having a lot of trauma around that. And so Claire kind of wants to get revenge on him. So she befriends him really to revenge him. And yeah. it, the the concept of revenge is also embedded in the fact that Ricky shot Wesley and then shot himself. So I'm wondering if you were thinking about this concept or if that just sort of came out that, that it wasn't necessarily revenge, it was humiliation. I'm just wondering if you could talk about this. It, yeah, Claire definitely wanted revenge, but her revenge was based on her own personal issues in uh, high school. So, um, and, and the ensuing discussions that she had surrounding social justice. She definitely wanted that revenge, but the revenge wasn't completely for Ricky. I mean, there were some selfish motivations on her part, uh, simply because she had been, she had also been kind of spurned by this boy that she really, really liked. She's Asian, she's Chinese. He just said that she, he's not into the Chinese girl thing. And that really kind of opened her eyes to certain things about her life as uh, an Asian American girl in New Hampshire, you know, in a very white place. So yeah, because she had that eye opening experience um, and because she felt this guilt for not uh, helping Ricky when she she knew that he was confiding in her she ends up trying to you know do this uh, revenge thing on Mark as far as the idea of revenge it that wasn't really a uh, 
uh, like I wasn't thinking about that when I was writing. It just kind of happened organically that, you know, she did want to, you know, seek vengeance on this whole whole matter. But it wasn't something I was like explicitly thinking about as I was writing. Wondering if you thought a lot about Ricky's act. You know, he he shot Wesley and he shot himself. And you see a lot of suicides in these deeply humiliating, bullying, mean, cruel experiences that especially in high school, but not only in high school, you think you can't ever get over. And I'm wondering if you thought a lot about it, about the suicide aspect. And is it from a sense of hopelessness? Is it from a sense of not being able to think it gets better, like you were mentioning Dan Savage's campaign? And when you were crafting this character and people's reactions to his actions, because that's what they're left with. I'm wondering if you came out with any different thoughts than when you started or, or, or your initial take on that. Well, my take on it was such that I really, really wanted to inhabit Ricky Graves and I wanted to inhabit him fully. I didn't want to have it inhabit him retrospectively. I want to inhabit him as a teenager going through what he was going through. And as I did that, I realized that the idea of time is so much different for an adolescent than it is for an adult. And so you can say something like it gets better when you're an adult um, to an adolescent, but an adolescent is not living in the same time. You know, it doesn't have the same frame of reference for time that an adult has. So if you're telling, like, let's say a 14-year-old that you just have to wait, that it will get better when you're an adult and you can move out, you could do all these things, um, that, to me, as I was inhabiting, you know, the character of Ricky Graves, didn't really resonate because I was living this life every single day and this life was torturous every single day. And for you to tell me to wait a day, let alone years, for it to get better is not something I want to hear. It's just kind of like when your parents tell you, you know, you know I can't wait till you do X, Y, Z. It's like as an adolescent, you just kind of brush that off because you just never think that you're going to populate the adult population, really. And so I really wanted to, you know, fashion Ricky as somebody who just, I mean, I guess he snaps. Yeah, I mean, he does, but it's because of a, a lot of reasons. Um, and I, you can't really pinpoint just one particular reason. But part of it, what contributes to it is this sense of time, is this sense of it's not going to end. And in order to not be embarrassed again, he needs to just be done. What was your experience like in high school? <laughs> um, it wasn't fun. I grew up in North Dakota. I was an Asian kid. You know, I was you know, struggling with sexuality, even though back then I wasn't really thinking about it too hard. It was isolating. It was lonely. And I think a lot of that comes across in the book because I felt it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Han Matson, author of the novel, The Lost Prayers of Ricky Graves. When you talk about, you know, that time and adults telling you it's going to get better and and thinking about it from the adolescent point of view, Ricky, we hear his voice throughout the book 
through these chats that he had in a like a man chat room. And he met a, a man named Jeremy who was in San Francisco, who was much older, had been through high school, had just been going through his own breakup. Um, can you talk about this relationship and what, you know, can you mentor someone online and this idea of finding solace online and that whole element in the novel? I think you can mentor someone online. Uh, when I was in college, AOL was happening and I would always go into the chat rooms and I would meet particular people and I would just chat. I mean, back then it wasn't about, you know, it wasn't about hooking up really. I mean, I guess it was somewhat, but a lot of it was just chatting. A lot of it was just like kind of connecting with people online um, to discuss things, especially if you're like a young gay person. You know, this is like one outlet for you to talk with other gay people. And there's kind of this entire, you know, universe through your computer that you can, you can connect with people. And so I think um, mentorship can happen online. I think it does. I don't know about the efficacy of mentorship online versus mentorship in person. I imagine an in-person mentor would be just so much more meaningful. And when I and if I think about, you know, my own experience online, because I did have kind of I wouldn't call them mentors, but I did have uh, people I chatted with online regularly versus people that I actually met um, in college that became kind of mentors. I mean, the people that I met face to face were definitely more important to me. You know, they helped guide me along in a, in a much more meaningful way than the people online did. But nowadays, it's I think the internet is different. I think um, it's not a, as much of a chat thing. So the thing with Jeremy and and Ricky chatting, uh, that's a actually kind of unusual. I, I think it's a great thing that happened, but really, I don't think a lot of people just chat a lot online anymore like that, especially with people that they've just never met. With their, this relationship between Ricky and Jeremy, it was complicated. I mean, Jeremy was an adult. Ricky was a child. At first, he told him he was 21, I think, and then he admitted he wasn't. You know, he was very, I don't know if it was needy with Jeremy, but he kept saying, come out and visit. I'll visit you. So you have to be careful as a grown man where you go. So I'm just curious if you could just talk about more about this relationship and, and writing it. Well, the relationship for Jeremy was a result of his breakup with Craig. I mean, he wanted to kind of prove to Craig that the, the Internet could be used as, a, as an actual, like an altruistic device. But he wasn't really proving anything because Craig didn't really care at that point. But he wanted to kind of, he just wanted to, sh to show himself, I guess, and then maybe uh, tell Craig later. But as far as him and Ricky, he... Jeremy was never really that invested. And I think it comes across in the chats that he just wasn't invested in Ricky's situation. He was doing it out of his own personal ambition, you know, but it, he was never he, he never saw Ricky as an actual individual who was living this life. I mean, he chatted and they kind of developed this relationship, but it was never something that Jeremy took seriously until 
you know, until Ricky did what he did. And then then he had to examine what this actually meant, what this relationship actually meant. And should he have come out to New Hampshire knowing, you know, I mean, he was an adult, yes, and Ricky was a child. And what, how would that look? I mean, he, that's not really explored in the in the book so much. But yeah, it's like, was he actually a contributor to this heinous crime? Because he didn't actually get on a plane and go out and meet Ricky in person. So yeah, it does get very complex when you uh, think about it like that. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Han Matson, author of the novel, The Lost Prayers of Ricky Graves. I think there is this sort of idea in the novel, of course, could someone have stopped this? It's both explicit in the fact that Jeremy talked to him that day and Ricky's sister, Alyssa, finds out that they have been in contact. She's like, you could have stopped this to a more maybe almost metaphysical idea that when Alyssa was in high school, she had been pregnant and she went in and told Ricky when he was, I think he was seven, and she asked if he wanted to be an uncle, and she wonders if she had had that kid, would things have turned out different? So it's kind of like micro decisions and macro decisions um, yeah. stopping something. And I'm just wondering about your thoughts on this idea. Yeah, I mean, I think about this a lot, and that's one of the main thrusts of the book is this idea of culpability. And my take on it is is, is that everyone is culpable and nobody is culpable. You know, everyone might have contributed to this this heinous crime that occurred, but you just don't know. Okay. So like you can say that because Corky, you know, was telling Ricky that he needed to stand up for himself, that maybe that spurred Ricky to like do something. You could say that Harriet wasn't available enough and that that uh, Alyssa wasn't available. Uh, Alyssa was ignoring him, you know, and that could have caused Ricky to do something. You could say that, you know, Claire wasn't a good enough friend, you know, only relying on the friendship to be online. Uh, you could say, obviously, that Mark was responsible because he took part in the prank. And you could say Jeremy was responsible because he didn't come out when Ricky asked him to. The thing is, whenever these kinds of shootings or heinous crimes happen, what, we, what we're so quick to do is to assign blame um, and to say, uh, the reason this happened is because of this. And I think what that does is it just strips away the complexity of the issue and, and doesn't really take into account that we don't actually know the whole motivation for what anybody did. I mean, we can look back at the person's history and we could say, well, you know, they had a rough childhood, but then you can look at someone else's history who's done a similar thing and say, oh, their childhood was not the same at all as this person, but they committed a very similar crime. And basically we're living in kind of a world of like shifting contexts and shifting environments and constantly shifting even like biochemical states. And so you, it's really hard to predict anything with 100% accuracy. And I think the conversation needs to go more towards just this kind of complex idea surrounding these um, shootings and not just pinpointing one reason it happened. 
reasons, you know, because I just don't think that's the case. I just don't think there's one particular reason or one particular person to blame. And so in the book, again, everyone can be to blame, but nobody can be to blame because you could take one factor away and maybe it would have changed things. Uh, but you could put all those factors together and maybe Ricky wouldn't have done what he did. Do you know what I mean? So it's not you, you just don't know. I'm curious about the role of the town. I think it's different when you grow up the way Ricky does in a very small, rural, isolated town than in a city. I'm not saying that people in cities don't suffer or people in small towns don't get through it unscathed. But I, I know that was something you were thinking about. And I think you grew up in a small town. Yeah, my town was about 50,000. So it was one of the bigger towns in North Dakota. But that's, you know, saying something. The biggest town is Fargo, which is, I think, about 100,000 people. So my town wasn't tiny, tiny. It wasn't probably as tiny as uh, the Springs was. But it was really isolated because it's in northern North Dakota. The nearest actual city would be Minneapolis, and that's five hours away. So you feel like you don't really leave the town. I mean, you can go down to Fargo, I guess, but that's basically it. There's really nothing around there. Yeah. And the town uh, in earlier drafts definitely had more of a character because it was populated by so many more people in my in the book. And so it became more of a character. I think the town in The Lost Prayers of Ricky Graves is maybe less of a character, uh, but it, it's still there. It's still maybe, you know, when I was talking about, you know, the reasons for people doing something and saying that, you know, you can't pinpoint one thing, but like, you know, pinpoint geography is like, you know, growing up in a tiny little town and dealing with these, um, these issues of, you know, sexuality and stuff is a, a little bit more difficult, I'd say, than growing up in city where, where it's just a little bit more prevalent. The other big theme in the book is technology in the world. And it is not an easy answer to say it's good or bad. Technology is what made Ricky suffer because it was posted online. His man chats um, were something that brought him solace. And we see also with Jeremy kind of the crux of the discussion about technology. So he's the older man in San Francisco, and he had just broken up with Craig, his boyfriend, who was kind of a Luddite and saying technology is ruining our lives. What was the impetus for you to think so much about technology? Obviously, it's something you think about in your daily life and then weaving it into this book. Well, the impetus was, um, again, the I mean, the Tyler Clemente case where the technology was such a big focus, not just because it was broadcast, but because he invited people and there was that uh, there is a possibility to be gawked at by a large number of people. Now, I didn't want it to be kind of a, you know, a polemic, you know, I didn't want it to be a technology is bad because I just don't believe that. I think when I first started writing the book, seven years ago, I thought I, I had more negative views of technology than I do today. Um, and a lot of my negative views come out through Craig. And I still agree with some of the things that he says, um, but I also uh, disagree. Can you explain what some of those things are that he says? He calls uh, the internet and essentially um, social media a uh, a digital tapestry of unanswered prayers. And that's kind of inspiration for the title as well. Um, 
And what he means by that is that uh, people via social media are broadcasting to the world their wants and desires, um, sometimes not explicitly, but often subtextually. Um, and by broad broadcasting these things, um, basically by displaying how great their lives are through photos, they're in effect showing how their lives are perhaps not that great because people who need to broadcast how great their lives are usually trying to hide something like some underlying misery. It's kind of the whole literary adage, you know, show, don't tell. Um, and the social media seems to be kind of a repository for telling. Even when you're showing something, even when you're showing like a, a photo, um, you're telling the world uh, that you're having, you know, that your life is good. And you're seeking validation for the, that life by through, you know, likes or through, you know, other positive reinforcement. It does because there isn't any real on the on the major platform, social media platforms. Anyways, there's no real you, you can't dislike something. Uh, what happens, I think, sometimes is people get this idea that what they say and what they, you know, what they broadcast is just is good and important when maybe it's not because they're just getting positive reinforcement all the time. And I think that kind of feeds into this idea of narcissism um, that happens with social media. So I agree with some of that stuff that's going on with um, social media and, and the internet. What I don't agree with is when he talks, when he says that it doesn't spur true altruism, because I don't think that's the case at all. I think uh, social media um, has been proven to gather people together. People use it often as a tool. I mean, we've seen it put together the biggest marches in this country's history, you know, and that's face-to-face -face interaction. You're using the internet to actually bring people together face-to-face. -to -face. And I, so I don't believe that it's just this lazy form of, um, of sympathy and connection, because I think it does actually make people, it, it brings people together um, in a way that uh, wasn't possible before the internet. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Han Matson, author of the novel, The Lost Prayers of Ricky Graves. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Okay, so I'm going to read a passage from uh, a Russell Banks short story. And the short story is called Sarah Cole, a type of love story. And I think the story is quite beautiful. So I'm just going to read a short passage. He turned, saw her, and instantly regained the moment he had lost when, the previous night, once outside the bar, he had forgotten about the ugliest woman he had ever seen. She seemed even more grotesque to him now than before, which made the moment all the more precious to him. And so once again, he held the moment as if in his hands and began to speak with her, to ask questions, to offer his opinions and solicit hers. I said earlier that I am the man in the story and my friend Sarah Cole, now dead, is the woman. I think back to that night, the second time I had seen Sarah, and I tremble, not with fear, but in shame. My concern then, when I was first becoming involved with Sarah, was merely with the moment holding on to it, grasping it wholly as if its beginning did not grow out of some other prior moment in her life and my life separately, and at the same time did not lead into future moments in our separate lives. She talked more easily than she had the night before, and I listened as eagerly and carefully as I had before, again, with the same motives, to keep her in front of me, to draw her forward from the context of her life and place her as if she were an object into the context of mine. I did not know how cruel this was. 
when you have never done a thing before and that thing is not simply and clearly right or wrong, you frequently do not know if it is a cruel thing. You just go ahead and do it. And maybe later you'll be able to determine whether you acted cruelly. That way you'll know if it was right or wrong of you to have done it in the first place. Do you want to talk about choosing this? Yeah, I, Russell Banks, I've read all of his his novels. He writes a lot about class, um, and he writes a lot of times from the perspective of the underclass or from working class people. And what he does is he he do, he does it like really unflinchingly. He doesn't turn them into caricatures. He gives them really kind of awful characteristics sometimes, and he doesn't. He's he's unforgiving about it, you know. I just like that because I don't I don't actually see that a lot in fiction nowadays. I mean, I see a lot of fiction kind of focused around more middle class um, people uh, with maybe some some working class people thrown in almost caricature like, but not anything that really focuses and humanizes, you know, the underclass. And I think. I really like that about him. One of the inspirations for the book, just as far as form, uh, was his book, The Sweet Hereafter. And that was one of kind of the inspiration as far as like uh, taking those those voices. He's all, he also wrote this other brilliant book called Trailer Park, which also has all these uh, first person voices from a trailer park. Um, and they're all done superbly. Um so that's kind of he's kind of been inspirational in that sense. Can you read a passage from something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or turned out differently than when you started. Sure. Um, I'm going to read uh, the first section, just a small section of um, Mark McVitry's section, because he was certainly the most difficult to to write. OK. <clears throat> it's totally real, this disease, because Mrs. V, she doesn't lie. It's like when something really f***ing bad happens to you. You can't stop being paranoid about everything, like things are truly lurking around every corner, ready to shoot and attack. Weird thing is, right after, like after I was done with the painkillers and my arm started working right again, I felt fine, like I thought I'd be able to live my life normally. School is canceled for a week, of course, but when it reopened, I went back and people actually called me a hero. All my teachers gave me good grades on tests and girls, they wanted to touch my arm. Scooter and Brian and Grant, they laid off the dick punching. The weather was perfect. My parents seemed really proud of my quick recovery. Even the reporters were nice to me, not mentioning the Ricky Maggie picture and all. So I obviously felt amazing, like indestructible and heroic. I even remember thinking, damn, Maybe I should go into the military just for this. Tell me why you chose this. Yeah, he was just really difficult. And I'm really glad how he turned. I, I'm really happy with how he turned out in the end. But there was a long while where I was just like, I don't know if I can inhabit you, Mark. I just I don't know if I can do it. And I'm just so glad I did it. Where do you write? At my desk in my living room. It's basically like a really long table. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, I live right next to a really nice bike slash jogging path um, that runs along Sligo Creek. It's really nice. Um, so I go there and take walks. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a first reader. His name is Teddy Helfers, uh, another fiction writer. And conveniently, he lives only a couple miles away from me. How have you dealt with rejection? 
Um, I separate it into two categories. If there is feedback on rejection, I read it. Um, if there's no feedback uh, and there's, you know, it's just like a form rejection, I just ignore it because, you know, rejection for a writer is a way of life. You can't take that personally. And what is your favorite word? I'm going to go with two. One of them is eviscerate and another one is victual. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was James Han Matson, author of the novel The Lost Prayers of Ricky Graves. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.